In episode 5, we examined the role of chivalry in the Tudor period and how it was used to uh, protect and support the reign of Elizabeth. In this episode, we're going to look at something which is very much closely tied to chivalry and which was used, and that is the Tudor court, court life. This is important as it tells us much about the monarchs that ruled, about English society and England's connection to broader European developments. The court and world of Henry VIII very much remained a combination of medieval and early modern. Henry VIII maintained the medieval monarch's fascination with hunting, jousting tournaments, military pursuits, and feasting. And it maintained a certain roughness, which was both a reflection of the times and of the monarch himself. The brutality of Henry and his court extended well beyond the beheading of his two wives. Henry demanded complete obedience and failure to complete a task, regardless of how impossible. Punishments included seizure of all assets and loss of titles, imprisonment, torture, burning at the stake, and even hanging, drawing, and quartering. Henry wavered back and forth between Catholicism and reform, eventually settling somewhere in the middle. He at times persecuted reformers, at other times Catholics, especially those that went against the royal supremacy, that he was the head of the church. Anabaptists were attacked, and in 1538 he worked to, quote, root out all those who argued against the real presence of Christ in the sacrament of communion. A man named Lambert had denied Christ's presence in the bread and wine taken at communion and was put on trial. Henry himself argued against Lambert's position in court. Lambert would not back down in the end. As Henry could not lose, he was condemned and burnt at the stake. His legs were burnt off to the thighs while he still lived before two officers threw him into the flames, putting him out of his misery. And many hundreds met a similar fate. The punishment for treason was worse. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of people were tried for treason during Henry's reign. This could be due in part to rebellion, which was very common. In 1543, men Richard Featherston, Thomas Abel, and Edward Powell were executed for treason for denying royal supremacy. Their punishment, as for all treason cases, was hanging, drawing, and quartering. Pretty gruesome stuff, and I'll leave it at that, but it didn't end well. During the later years of Henry's reign, hundreds met such fates. In many cases, Henry had the power to halt the punishments, showing clemency, but this rarely happened. A good example of this is Richard Dawkins, a boy not yet 15 years old. He was illiterate, and he denied the presence of Christ and was executed at Henry's request. So Henry's court was always a dangerous place. The later years of his reign especially so, as he became increasingly paranoid, obese, and debilitated, he worried about religion and about Edward, his young heir, and no one at court, or indeed in the kingdom, was safe from his wrath. This is not to suggest that Henry's court was poor or backward, as such was not the case. Cardinal Wolsey created a lavish dwelling of great richness at Hampton Court, which admirably displayed the wealth and power of its owner. But generally Henry's court lacked the refinement that could be found later on in the court of Elizabeth. Henry VIII had a core of respected scholars and the like at his court, and Henry himself showed considerable interest in learning and art. One of his servants wrote, quote, The other day he wished he was more learned. I said, That is not what we expect of your grace, that you will foster and encourage learned men. Yea, surely, said he, for indeed without them we should scarcely exist at all. The problem that Henry faced was that England was still relatively removed from the broader cultural and intellectual developments taking place in continental Europe. 
The Renaissance, which originated in Italy, had not really made its way to England, although influences were creeping in by the early 16th century. Most learned men in England focused their efforts upon acquiring books, especially Latin translations of Greek texts, and they worked to develop a better Latin. There was little interest in humanistic approaches of acquiring knowledge for knowledge's sake. There were some very accomplished scholars, such as Thomas More and Erasmus, but these had in some ways limited influence. There were also a number of significant painters. Perhaps the most influential artist to spend time at Henry's court was Holbein. Holbein was born in Augsburg, Germany in 1497, came to England during the winter of 1526-27. He stayed for a year and painted the Moore family and many other people of distinction. He returned to England in 1532, only to find that his old friends were either dead or disgraced. It was not long before he found the influential patronage he required, first painting Thomas Cromwell, and then from 1536 to his death in 1543, remaining as the paid servant of Henry himself. He painted a great series of portraits of the king, queen, and the courtiers of the day, and is recognized as being one of the period's finest portrait painters. In his portraits, art historians point to the simplicity of the women's clothes. Nothing too flashy to take away from the face being painted. Well, in the men, they see the stamp of competence and command. We see this in the Holbein cartoon of Henry VIII, which hangs in the National Portrait Gallery. Henry VIII is not portrayed as beautiful, with his small, beady eyes rather far apart, but you do get a sense of majesty and of power. In paintings, Cromwell shows ability and power, and even the servants at the court all show strength and even craftiness, the very qualities that they use to help make Henry great. But outside of Holbein, there was little else in the way of court artists. Henry's sergeant painters were mainly occupied in supplying decorations for His Majesty's ships. During the reign of Edward, there was an increasing number of foreign painters at court, but it was under Elizabeth that the Italian Renaissance truly came to England. Under Elizabeth, court life reached its height. It was the contact point for Renaissance influences in England. It was, as one writer has put it, quote, the plane upon which the social life of the country was lifted and exposed, the nerve center of society, government, and cultural life. It was the world, the power, the glory. Since Queen Elizabeth's court was dominated by a woman, it was decidedly different from that of Henry VIII's. It was more refined, had more dignity and decorum, was much less brutal than other contemporary courts. It's been described as a court of love and a place of worldly enjoyments, music and dancing, plays, games, cards, feasts and other entertainment. It was also cultivated and intellectual with interest in crafts and painting, jewelry, languages and literature. Elizabeth herself was a good classical scholar. Many of the leading figures at court were very well read, spoke several languages and wrote poetry. So the court was a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It was, of course, about patronage. Peers had a right of personal access to the sovereign, who would address them as cousin. These peers, all the wealthiest and most powerful men and women of the day, were looking to gain the Queen's favour, and there were a host of others who looked to them for support. Elizabeth provided little direct patronage, only in the production of some tournaments and pageants, and employing about 60 musicians in her chapel royal. But her courtiers were very generous and supported a wide range of poets, musicians, artists, actors, and others, all adding to the refinement of court life. The court was a place where all the leading men and women of the realm came together. They discussed business. They formed relationships. 
they destroyed their enemies. They enjoyed the arts. They brought down their rivals. It was refinement, culture, politics, and intrigue all rolled into one. Increasingly, historians have come to realize that court life was dominated by one sort of key concept, and that is court factions. A faction is a political group whose members are bound to a leader by a variety of personal and formal ties in which vies for power with other similar groups. Now, these factions became the center of court life in the 16th and 17th century because of changes emerging in English political life. Just look at the reign of Elizabeth and you'll get a better understanding. The number of times that there were assassination attempts, the religious intrigue, she had to be protected. And so what we see is fewer people having direct access to the monarch. And this was critical because the whole key to political power was about access. Increasingly in the Tudor and Stuart periods, more and more people were denied this access. Personal contact with the king or queen provided the opportunity to receive favours and patronage and to influence policy. Those who lacked access to the monarch were cut off from the primary source of power and therefore had to seek power through others who had access. So the way that factions work basically is that you had the monarch in the centre. The powerful, the peers of the land had access. Their friends and followers and servants all have access to them. And then at the bottom, you've got people with no access. So you've got a large proportion of society all needing to gain access to the monarch. But they can only do this through the powerful individuals of the realm. And so any time they're going to press for changes in policy, if they want to influence decisions, gain patronage or political power and wealth, they have to do it through others. And so you get these groups forming uh, in Elizabethan society, in the court, um, all focused around gaining the attention of the monarch. And at the center of this, of course, is the monarch, is Elizabeth. So probably the easiest way to think about it is like there was a great ballroom dance taking place. And in the center of the dance floor is Elizabeth, sitting, looking at all the festivities, and circling around her are all these different factions in a great dance, all trying to gain her attention, all to sway her opinion. And in the whole time this is taking place, she is watching and trying to better understand what's going on at court, trying to make those important decisions. And so this was a real important focal point of the Tudor dynasty, of the Tudor court in the Elizabethan period. And it goes to one of the real strengths that Elizabeth had, how she could manipulate the court factions, play them off one against the other, use these factions to gain information so that she could better make her decisions and protect her own life. We see this very well captured in the film Elizabeth. It's a great scene in the film where she is at court and there is a great ball going on and the camera looks at Elizabeth talking to her friends, glancing over at this person and that person while all these festivities are going on and all the music and dancing and each faction comes up and talks to her, the French, the Spanish, the English. Everyone who wants to put a suitor forward comes to talk to the Queen. And in amongst all of that, she's there sort of taking part, but watching and gaining information. We also see the importance of this reflected in the art of the period. When comparing portraits of Henry's and Elizabeth's reigns, art historians suggest that in Henry's day, portraits show danger and the law of the jungle. Under Elizabeth, it's quite different. 
We see sort of a civilized weariness, competitiveness, flattery, the struggle for favor, but above all, refinement. And so looking at the Elizabethan court tells us a great deal about not only court life, but changes in government and society in the Tudor period. That England had moved away from the medieval court of Henry VIII, and were now being influenced by the Renaissance, by these influences from abroad as they were coming in and having an impact on court. But it still remained a dangerous place, a place that needed control because there were all these tensions in society and these were going to have an impact upon the queen. So under Elizabeth, court life changed. It was now very much a Renaissance court, but it was one that was controlled and manipulated by the queen and her counselors. So in many ways, it very much ties in with what we were looking at with chivalry. This is something which the uh, court of Elizabeth, which her counselors could use very effectively to gain information, to control what was going on and manipulate uh, the direction that the government would take.